Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast and this is number 50. So for all seven of you out there, and well done for making it this far, especially when you can't even get CPD's points for it. And those of you who thought you could, um, two of you have now left, so great, thanks for that. And um, Today we'll look at O's Manual Chapter 80, written by the one and only Ollie Flower of Smack and Coda fame. So like traumatic brain injury, we can split up spinal cord injury into primary and secondary injury. So primary injuries include direct mechanical injury to the cord, like compression or hematoma laceration, traction or even um, complete transection which is thankfully rare. Secondary injuries include local ischemia that begins at the site but can extend progressively in both directions i.e. the cord um, level of the injury can actually get worse it can actually go um, arise with time due to the edema. There is loss of autoregulation of blood supply and there's lots of inflammatory stuff going on. In addition there's often bleeding into the cord um, with associated further edema. So the assessment of spinal cord injury is driven by the ASIA score, which is a systematic severity assessment tool that includes pictures and tells you what all the dermatomes and the myotomes are, so that you don't need to actually carry them all around in your brain. It is a useful and at this stage a well-validated tool for motor prognosis that forms a cornerstone of assessing spinal cord injury. So it spits out a grade A to E, which is unhelpfully the opposite of what you wanted to get in your A levels, as a grade A is a complete injury with a very low chance of recovery. Um, B is described as sensory incomplete which again is confusingly named suggests that there is an incomplete sensory injury but in reality it means a severe motor injury with preservation of sensory function below the level of the injury C and D are varying degrees of motor preservation below the injury and grade E is normal Okay. A further key point to help us speak the language of the spinal surgeons is that of neurological level of injury. So the neurological level of injury is the most caudal segment with normal sensory and anti-gravity, in other words, um, 3 plus um, motor function. Remember that the neurological level does not usually equal the radiological level as the spinal cord is much shorter than the spinal column. There are a variety of cord syndromes described um, and these are certainly exam worthy and worth knowing about. So first off, the central cord syndrome consists of um, weakness and sensory loss in the arms more than the legs. Um, The useful mnemonic here is MUD, M-U-D, motor upper distal. Um, Think in the scenario of hyperextension in a grotty neck where there is pre-existing arthritis. And the pathophysiology here is central ischemia and hematoma. Um, next, the anterior cord syndrome. This looks a little bit like loss of motor pain and temperature below the injury, but you still will have some um, fine touch below the level of the injury. This is also can be seen in aortic pathologies as well, where you lose the spinal arteries. The Brown-Sicard syndrome is perhaps more notable for teaching anatomy than it is for clinical practice, but for completeness this is typically in a penetrating injury involving spinal cord where there's ipsilateral loss of motor, proprioception and fine touch, and contralateral pain and temperature loss. Diagnosis and imaging these days is all about CT and MRI. Now there is still a robust literature in well-done plane films for exclusion of C-spine injury in the lower risk patients, but by now I think everyone has just moved on to CT. And the controversy in intensive care at this stage is whether a CT is sufficient to to take the collar off. So O's manual cites a 4% mystery rate for CT, i.e. injuries not seen in CT that will show up in MRI. But more importantly than this is only 0.3% actually need an intervention. So CT remains better for bones, but MRI is brilliant for cord and for ligaments. So in general, from what I've seen, if the patient has a neck but is unconscious, then they end up getting an MRI, generally several days after the original injury and the normally reported CT C-spine. So this leads to a prolonged and somewhat really hard to quantify decrement in the patient's care, as um, maintaining spinal precautions is challenging in the ICU patients and lots of things just get a bit delayed and it's not as good when they've got the collar on. Um, so there certainly would be an advantage to get it off. 
so the Eastern Association for Surgery of Trauma Group in the States, um, they've made a guideline document and have made a conditional recommendation for clearance of the C-spine following a normal CT C-spine, but this doesn't seem to have made it across the Atlantic to our orthopaedic teams, even if it seems our local neurosurgeons have embraced the idea. Bottom line here is that this remains a topic of controversy where there is a very small but not zero risk of removing the collar without the MRI. So one thing to remember when ordering imaging is vertebral artery injury. Um, while not routine, you should have a low threshold for adding an angio when there is a fracture of the transverse foramen, the base of skull, a facet joint, um, or even pre-existing spinal disease. It is not good form to wake them up two days later to find they have stroked from a dissection that you missed. So moving on to management for spinal cord injury. Um, an incomplete injury with compression on imaging needs urgent decompression. That's the urgent in inverted commas. The term urgent here is somewhat ill-defined in this statement, but it doesn't seem to be a 3am type of urgent in my um, very limited experience. So managing a spinal cord injury in the ICU is best broken up by systems. Well, perhaps it's best broken up by systems, certainly for an exam answer. So we take it by body system from a respiratory point of view. If it's a high C-spine injury, then you can expect loss of the diaphragm and apnea. That's fairly straightforward and obvious, and you should know how to fix that. If the diaphragm is preserved, then there will still be a loss of cough. Um, and somewhat paradoxically, these patients generally breathe better flat rather than upright. So when supine, the abdominal contents push the diaphragm diaphragm up which actually gives the diaphragm a mechanical advantage for respiration given that that's the only muscle they have effective for respiration depending on the level. So you can expect to see reduced vital capacity and functional residual capacity with atelectasis, reduced chest wall compliance and spasticity of chest wall muscles. There's often wheeze due to um, sympathetic loss and allergy of loss to beta outflow and 75% of um, cervical injuries will need intubation. So ventilation it can be done with higher tidal volumes, um, up to 10 mils per kilogram to prevent atelectasis and allow a lower peep. Again, um, having a lower peep gives the diaphragm the advantage. If they are extubatable, then extubation to non-invasive is probably reasonable. If you have a complete injury above C5, then almost all will need a tracheostomy, so perhaps best to crack on and do it early and expect a prolonged ventilatory wean. When it comes to hemodynamics, the loss of sympathetic outflow can cause a profound vasoplegia, hypotension and bradycardia. So asystole can be common with simple suction in the first week and then resolves with time rather than a pacemaker typically. So you will be a lot of anxiety about temporary pacing wires and things, but if these things give it a bit of time, it'll often settle down. Keeping the map greater than 85 might actually help um, in terms of outcomes and has some low-level data in support of this and it has a guideline recommendation to keep the map above um, 85 for seven days post-injury. So this can often lead to a request for a critical care bed for an otherwise well patient who needs some noradrenaline and an arterial line to meet the map targets. Neurogenic shock um, is of course a real thing in the immediate post-injury phase but as always in the immediate post-injury phase you should be thinking about bleeding first, second and third before considering neurogenic shock as a diagnosis. Autonomic dysreflexia is an interesting phenomenon. It describes hypertension due to sympathetic stimulation in patients with injuries above T6. It really only occurs after the initial period is settled and it's often a call to the ICU from a patient on the spinal unit who's no longer in the intensive care. There is a sympathetic vasoconstriction below the level of the lesion and parasympathetic reaction above the lesion with bradycardia, sweating and vasodilation. Bladder and bowel stimuli are probably the, the most likely culprits but remember ureteric stones can also do this and treatment involves setting them up and using each like GTN and Captopril um, or um, indeed IV sodium nitroprusside and GTN can be used if unresponsive to those therapies. And finally, as I've gone on lo too long already, a note on outcomes. Hospital survival here is 90%. The clinical exam um, 
the EASA score, even on day one, much more so than things like, than the, like the MRI, that EASA score w- remains the best predictor of clinical outcome. So to give you some numbers, there's a 7% conversion from age A, which is complete injury, to B, where you have um, some sensation, at one year. So a 7% conversion from A to B at one year, and um, with none progressing to C. In other words, if you have an age A, you will not get motor recovery. That is indeed a bit miserable, but on the brighter side, 50% of patients with an age B will convert to C or D within a year. And even improving a level of injury, i.e. you go from a C8 to a C7 injury, will lead to a significant improvement in hand function and ultimate quality of life. Um, so some reading here, O's Manual Chapter 80 is the main um, text for this. Um, back when I used to do the anatomy podcast, I did a three-part series in the anatomy um, of the spinal cord that you see linked to as well. And I've also linked to the Eastern Association for Surgery for Trauma 2015 Systematic Review, where that statement on C-spine clearance came from. Okay, thanks Mel. Bye. <laughs>